Welcome to the National Committee on U.S.-China Relations Events Podcast, where we bring you the audio from our public programs, featuring in-depth analysis of topics on China from scholars, journalists, authors, and policymakers. For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org. Good evening to those of you on the East Coast of the United States. Good afternoon to those on the West Coast, and good morning to those of you in China. It's wonderful to welcome so many of our friends to tonight's program.、Um, normally, we do this program in person uh, in. The, big, the second week of January, when Yifan, Yao Yang, and Yiping all come to the United States for meetings, and then we do a program either at Citibank or the New York Stock Exchange, which is a forecast on、um, on China's economy. This year, obviously, for the reasons of COVID-19 still raging in the United States and travel extremely difficult between the United States and China, we are doing it online. The good news is we have even a bigger Audience than we have when we're in person,、um, but it's it's wonderful that so many of you can join us. And I just want to thank、uh, the folks who sponsor this every year: Chubb, City,、uh, new sponsor Invesco, Vanek, and Excol, because without them we wouldn't be able to do this.、Uh, for now, the twelfth time. This will be the twelfth time we're doing it. And the reason I love this because it always informs my view. Of what's going to happen in China's economy in the coming year, and we're always joined by the leading economists in all of China. And this year, because we have to limit it to、um, just an hour and a half,、uh, we are joined by Hu Yifan,、uh, Yao Yang, and Huang Yiping.、Uh, Yifan, as you all know, is the regional chief investment officer and chief China economist of UBS Wealth Management. Yao Yang is what I often call my partner in crime because he runs this with me. Is a Chungkang scholar and Boya Chair Professor at China Center for Economic Research and the National School of Development.、Um, he's the Dean of the National School of Development at Peking University.、Uh, Huang Yiping is the Jingguang Chair Professor of Economics. Deputy Dean at the National School of, Deve- of Development and Director of the Institute of Digital Finance at Peking University. And Yiping, as I do in every case, I will ask you about digital finance at some point in the questions and answers. So we'll start with Yiping. We'll go to Yao Yang, and I know we'll start with Yifan. We'll go to Yao Yang, and then we'll go to Yiping. But、um, thank you for joining us so early in the morning, and we look forward to hearing your comments. Okay, thanks, Steve.、Uh, thanks for inviting me to present the Chinese economy forecast for the coming for this year, and also for the coming、uh, for the coming five years. So, as we know, the 2021 will mark as the the start of the China's 14th five-year plan. The announced proposal. And the 2035 long-term goals have set the tone of the policy priorities over the medium and the long term, with a comprehensive initiatives covering the Chinese economy, technology, governance, culture, the environment, and openness amid an increasing complicated geopolitical environment. So the policymakers in China have pledged that the China will reach high income status by 2025. And that 
its GDP or national income per capita will double by 2035. So that implies a GDP Kager target of 4.7% during 2021 to 2035. In other words, China will enter an era of the medium speed growth with the folks shifting the quality growth after decades of the high growth. If the China maintains this uh, growth rate uh, in our forecast by, by 2030, the China's GDP will be similar to the US GDP. Uh, we assume, if we assume that US GDP growth like will be around like between two to three percent. So for the China's for the long-term goal, so we think that uh, will be the, the drivers will be highlighted by the dual circulation uh, strategy, tax self-sufficiency, urbanization 2.0, and the green economy to help the economy bust even as it is being rebalanced. So for the, this year, we think the China's economy will continue to recover this year, in our view, with GDP growth rising to around 9% from the troll of the 2.3% in 2020, led by investment and consumption, with a potential upside surprise from the ex exports. So, and also the GDP growth may then normalize to the 5.0 to 5.5% during 2020 to 2021. So the China could remain the main global growth engine and the world's largest market with a population of the 1.4 billion and a middle income, uh, mark, the, the huge mar uh, potential market. So this year, uh, we, we call this year, it's a, uh, the China's market is a market of strength. So as we know, <clears throat> uh, the GDP growth will rebound to around like 9%. So in our view, uh, specifically for the consumption will uh, show low team growth. So especially for the retail sales, uh, enterprise are uh, uh, expected to post low team growth like uh, uh, in 2021 after shrinking to the 3.9%. And also for the investment side, we still expect for the infrastructure, it will be led by the infrastructure and also for the property uh, investment. So uh, we expect this year and the fixed income uh, investment will be still uh, continue to grow like uh, for the low team, uh, for, for the high single digit growth. And also for the credit side, there's a concern uh, for the PBOC to probably to tighten the liquidity. So we, in our view, it's over concern. Uh, we think that of course there's a no uh, no very no easing no like as easing as uh, last year but the, this year for the policy side we think will still remain uh, relatively redundant liquidity so in our view the leaders pledged for gradual policy normalization uh, in our view this year and for the credit growth will continue to be around uh, like a low team growth. So that will be around like a 12%. So it's not bad growth. And we think that that will continue to support the consumption and also investment, uh, especially for the urbanization 2.0 and also for the tech self-sufficiency will actually uh, bring some uh, extra st uh, strength to the Chinese economy. Uh, when we talk about the uh, risk, I think the for the Sino-US uh, tension, uh, probably will continue to be one of the risk 
Of course, like later, Yao Yang and EP will highlight more. Uh, but here, I just want to say, for the China, one side to uh, deal with this kind of the pressure, I think, is a do self better. So I think the uh, currently reforms and openness are two major strategies for China to uh, try to uh, keep some uh, external and internal balance and also uh, implement as a new circulation strategy like in the current situation. So uh, if we say that we have to mention the recently uh, for the last year, at the end of the last year, the China signed RCEP with the ASEAN countries uh, and also plus some uh, Australian, New Zealand, and also uh, other countries. And also um, late December, China signed the Sino-Europe Sino uh, invest bilateral investment treatment. I think all these kind of the policies actually brings some China extra strength uh, in, uh, in uh, complicated global environment and also bring China strengths probably to have a big bargaining power with the US. So I just stop here and probably we can like later like have to talk about more about this. Great, laid a great foundation. I would like to ask a ton of questions, but I'll let Yao Yang and, and Yiping uh, speak first. So let me turn it over to Yao Yang. Yeah, I'll mute myself. Okay, it's uh, uh, great uh, to come to uh, this uh, uh, workshop, let me call it, uh, it's uh, usually uh, we had this face-to-face uh, -face, uh, forum in New York City, but uh, this time we have to do this online. But I'd like uh, to thank uh, uh, Steve audience and uh, the National Committee uh, for organizing this. And uh, we hope uh, to continue our collaboration in the future. Uh, Ivan has just uh, laid a good foundation uh, for this uh, workshop. So let me uh, go details uh, to the uh, 14th five-year plan. Um, as you know, uh, China's two sessions, that, that is National People's Congress and the National People's Political Consultation Conference, will have uh, the annual meetings in Beijing in early March. And uh, the MPC session is going to announce, formally announce the 14th five-year plan. And usually when we talk about the five-year plans, uh, uh, we only treated uh, them as kind of indicative plans. Uh, that is, uh, you know, they, uh, they were just uh, guidance. Uh, they were not, um, meant to regularly implement it. Uh, but this time, it's a different because President Xi Jinping himself uh, participated quite regularly in the writing of the plan. And uh, he had several workshops consulting scholars and entrepreneurs. So uh, this plan, I would say, is going to be more regularly implemented than previous uh, plans, okay? It's a very comprehensive uh, plan, as Ivan said, uh, laid out uh, a, a actually gross target for the next uh, 15 years. Uh, but here, I only want to talk about the three uh, major things uh, that I believe uh, were 
uh, reshape the Chinese economy in the next five to 15 years, right? So those uh, three uh, directions are, uh, as Eva said, the first one was urbanization 2.0, or second wave of urbanization. Uh, second uh, is dealing with uh, climate change. And uh, the third one is uh, technological independence and the robust supply chains. Let me go a little bit deeper into those three directions. First, urbanization 2.0. China's urbanization has been going on for 40 years. The pace was not slow. Each year we add about 1% of rural population to the cities, right? But in the next 15 years, we are going to probably accelerate that pace um, more than 200 million people are still going to move into the city. Okay, so that's uh, uh, it's kind of a, 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 continu a continuous movement uh, from the past, right? But then the new thing is that now uh, the government uh, uh, wants to uh, give up uh, this uh, even distribution of population, right? So in the past. Uh, people were encouraged to move to nearby cities, right? but this time uh, you know, urbanization is going to be mainly around nine so-called central cities, uh, like Beijing, Shanghai, Guangzhou, Shenzhen. You know, then we're going to see probably seven uh, urban uh, centers uh, in urbanized areas in China. Right? And there, we're going to see more people moving from uh, second or third, fourth tier cities to first tier cities or cities around the first tier uh, cities. So population is going to be concentrated. Right? Uh, that's going to dramatically change the distribution of China's economic activities. Right? Uh, uh, those activities are going to be concentrated in a few urbanized uh, uh, centers, right? So uh, currently in China, we are discussing about uh, the decline of the north and the rise of the south, right? So that's actually uh, just a, a one, sign, one of the signs for the concentration of economic activities. And together with that, uh, the hukou system is going to be reformed. Uh, the government just allows a new policy to open up the Hukou uh, system, except uh, those uh, mega cities. Right? So that's the uh, uh, first thing. The second is uh, to deal with uh, climate change. Uh, China has announced China is going to peak its emission by 2030 and to reach uh, net zero by 2060. Those two uh, Tasks are just daunting tasks. Uh, it's not that easy. Uh, for example, currently in China, coal still accounts for uh, about 80% of China's energy mix, right? And China's emission is uh, still uh, increasing. And if the e prediction is correct, then in the next uh, five or seven years, uh, Chinese economy is going to be in a booming period. Again, 
And if the economy is booming, then emission is going to increase, right? So even to reach uh, this emission peak by 2030 is going to be a daunting task for the government. But the government is uh, gearing up uh, its policies uh, to reach uh, those two goals, like uh, to implement the carbon tax uh, or carbon trading, uh, green finance, uh, all those things, right? And we also see uh, the electric vehicle sector uh, booming uh, in China. Uh, dealing with the climate change is going to uh, lay a foundation for the improvement of US-China relations, right? We all understand that President Biden puts a lot of emphasis on climate change. I think that's going to be good for US-China relations. And then the third area is technological independence and the robust supply chains. Um, this is mostly caused by US sanctions on high-tech exports to China, right? So China proposed this dual circulation strategy. And the essence of dual circulation is domestic circulation. And within that, I believe the essence is technological independence and to build a robust supply chain, right? Um, so the government uh, is uh, quite determined on this, okay? Uh, to give you an example, in the semiconductor industry, uh, China, uh, the current uh, self-sufficiency of supply of chips in China is about uh, 30%, uh, but uh, in five years time, uh, China aims at uh, uh, fulfilling 70% of self-supply of chips, right? So that's a, a major objective, but China probably will invest heavily in the semiconductor industry and to reach that goal, right? Um, China is also uh, checking uh, other areas to find out the technologies that are potentially uh, could be uh, under American sanction, right? So uh, with that, China wants to uh, reach a robust supply chain. So that can uh, run by themselves if uh, uh, outside, uh, if they are subject to outside sanctions, right? Uh, so overall, I would say those three major areas uh, were received the Chinese economy, and of course, uh, that uh, that's going to have major implications for U.S.-China relations. Let me stop here. Thank you. That's terrific. Um, Barry Norton immediately asked this same question that I would have. I wanted to ask, which is more a clarification about the Hukou reform. Uh, you know, Barry, like the three panelists today is part of our track two dialogue. And he said, you know, with the urbanization 2.0, isn't there a contradiction between saying people are going to move to nine kind of central cities, but at the same time, you're saying there's not going to be a liberalization in, you know, Beijing, Shanghai, and other cities? How is that going to work? 
how is Hukou going to actually be reformed? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Yeah, those mega cities uh, will maintain their current Hukou policy. But we are talking about uh, uh, urbanized regions, right? Like in Yangtze River Delta, we have not just Shanghai, we have Shuzhou, Hangzhou, you know, uh, other cities. Then in those other cities, uh, uh, they are going to have a unified Hukou system. Uh, for example, if I live in Shuzhou for three years, uh, they all have those uh, point system. I earn some points. So if I move to, uh, say, uh, Hangzhou or, or Nanjing, uh, those cities are going to recognize uh, my uh, scores. Uh, so I can continue my scores. So that's going to make uh, uh, my hook call more uh, easily. Okay, Yiping. Should I start? Yeah. Um, well, I guess the question I like to address um, in my opening remarks, it really is um, if the financial sector can deliver whatever um, Yifan and Yao Yang um, predicted for the next five years or maybe next 30 years. At the moment, if you, you follow the discussion in China, um, you probably will feel that that is a difficult task for the financial system. There are lots of complaints about um, the financial sector at the moment, but there are two issues always stand out in our policy discussion. The first complaint is that the financial sector no longer strongly support real economic activities. And the second complaint is that financial risks are growing everywhere. Um, so we needed to prevent um, systemic financial crisis. Um, let me go into these two issues um, one by one. The first question is, well, why is the financial sector not good enough to support economic growth? Um, when China started economic reform, we only had a one financial institution in China, the People's Bank of China, which was both a central bank and also a commercial bank. Um, but from then on, we made major progress in establishing a very large financial sector. Um, this sector, however, has a number of key characteristics. Number one, it's very large as all, um, of you would agree. Number two, it's dominated by banking sector. And the number three, somehow the government maintained um, interventions in parts of um, the, the financial system, like interventions in um, the, the setting of the interest rate, the lending rate, allocation of funds, um, and so on. So this is a quite unique in a way. It's a very large, it's bank dominated, but at the same time, there's still a high degree of government intervention. However, if you look at what happened in the Chinese economy last 40 years, even though as an economist, we always criticize this financial system, not as the best form, um, in best form, but you would agree that economic growth was a fantastic um, and the result we can't really complain up too much about uh, um, an annual uh, average GDP growth above 9% for 40 years. So obviously it worked, but now it's not anymore. Um, 
And the question is why? My own interpretation is that China now has entered into a new phase of development. In the past, we had a low cost advantage and the growth was kind of input driven and extensive growth. That's why the kind of state intervened, the bank dominated financial system worked one way or the other. The difference now is that we are up a middle income country and we probably will approach high income level relatively soon which means when the low cost advantage is gone, you need to rely on more on innovation. And one specific issue is how do we support the SMEs, the private enterprises? Because these SMEs now contribute more than 60% of GDP and 80%, 70% of um, corporate innovation and 80% of urban employment. The question now is that kind of financial system um, no longer works for a number of um, reasons because government intervention would certainly reduce allocative efficiency. Bank dominated financial system is not particularly suited to support innovation. And this is why I think this financial system needs to be revamped. Um, this is the first thing. Um, bottom line is the growth model is changing and the financial sector should also change. Otherwise, it will not be able to support economic growth. The second uh, complaint about the financial risk, now I have to say to start with that China is probably the only major emerging market economy in the world that hasn't experienced a systemic financial risk during the, for the past 40 years. However, the reason why we now seeing a lot of financial risks emerging in the capital markets, in the banking sector, in the shadow banking sector, and in the fintech area and so on, um, almost anywhere you can imagine about the financial risks, they're coming up. The question again is why? I think that the key answer is that the reason why we didn't have a financial crisis during the 40, last 40 years was not because of a very good financial regulation, but because of the two factors. Number one, continuously rapid economic growth. When the economy was expanding so rapidly, even if you made some problems during the development, you can always absorb it with very rapid continuous growth. Number two, government guarantee. Whenever there was a problem, the government would always step uh, forward and take the response, shoulder the responsibility. And if you look at what happened in 1997, during the Asian financial crisis, it was very clear. The non-performing loan ratio of the banking sector was above 30%, but there was no bank run. The banks continued to restructure and to grow. And today they're already among the largest in the world. The secret is that number one, the government took a responsibility to recapitalize, um, injecting capital and restructure the banking sector um, and so on. So there was no panic. And the number two, because the economy continued to grow so rapidly, the non-performing loan, non-performing assets we set aside at the end of the 1990s 
is already very, very tiny today compared to GDP. So these two factors supported the financial stability, but I'm sure you would agree, growth is already slowing and the government would not be able to forever guarantee any problems coming up from the financial sector. So this is why we need a complete revamp of the financial sector in order to support economic growth over the next five to 30 years. The policymakers already outlined a broader picture or a broad uh, framework of financial reform. And I will summarize them into three key areas. Number one, um, changing the structure of the financial intermediation, particularly developing multi-layer capital markets and the raise um, the proportion of direct finance in um, total financial intermediation basically means direct finance and the capital markets should become a lot more important in supporting innovation because they're probably better, more capable than the traditional banks in uh, facilitating innovation. Here, there's also a question about the financial innovation. Uh, I'm not getting into it, but uh, the fintech sector is really moving forward very rapidly in a number of areas like a mobile payment, the big tech lending, online investment, and probably also the central bank digital currency. China in one way or the other is leading um, in international development. That's happening and that needs to be happen, uh, they need to happen um, even more quickly. The second change is we really now need to enforce market discipline. Let the market mechanism to play decisive roles in allocating resources. And one key area is about exchange rate and more importantly, lending rate. The government has been making lots of efforts in supporting or encouraging the commercial banks lending more to the SMEs and the private enterprises and so on. I think we made a significant progress during the last five years. Um, the banks are lending a lot more, but they can only um, lend a lot more on sustainable basis on two conditions. Number one, you should be able to do the risk management um, effectively. This is why the technological progress in the fintech sector is very useful because the traditional banks are not capable of dealing with credit risk assessment of SMEs, for instance, because they don't have a lot of financial data. They don't have a lot of cultural assets, but the big tech companies can do that relying on big data. That's one side of the story. The other side of the story is you should let market-based risk pricing. The government, in fact, is continuously pushing down the lending rate artificially, asking the banks to lower the lending rate every year. That is goodwill, but it's not sustainable because SMEs, by definition, is more riskier than other enterprises. So I think how to really implement market-based risk pricing is a critical challenge now uh, going forward. Finally, um, the reform of the financial regulation, that is also important. We could no longer rely on the government to take all the responsibility for the problems to show up in the financial sector. So we needed to do a lot of things in the financial sector. Number one, we probably needed to focus more on the function, the transaction 
in the financial sector instead of focusing on the institution. By doing that, the, by focusing on the institution, the problem was there are lots of areas uncovered. Like when you have a shadow banking, when you have a FinTech, um, no regulators want to take a responsibility because they didn't really issue a license for them. That's something we needed to change. Number two, we also needed to enforce market discipline. Um, the, the, the problem in the past was a regulator has two responsibilities. One is regulation and the two is development. So most the regulators, because they're responsible for development, they have normally have a low tolerance of default and bankruptcy. Um, when that happens, you know, market discipline would not work. If the market discipline is not effective, then financial efficiency could not be really be raised. There's also a question about innovation of financial regulation because the financial sector is moving forward quite rapidly, but we number one don't have enough resources in regulatory organizations. And number two, we probably don't have enough capabilities about it. And finally, I also think some accountability in um, the regulatory system is also useful. The problem in the past is whenever there is a problem in the peer-to-peer -peer lending, in the small banks and so on, we all criticize these operators of these institutions. My question is when these problems happen in one institution, we can always criticize the managers and owners of these institutions. But when the problem is very broad based, like hundreds and thousands of institutions have the same problem. I think we needed to ask what was wrong with the regulatory system. I'll stop here. Three terrific presentations. I mean, and I've got tons and tons of questions. So let me let me just follow right on to uh, what Yi Ping said and just ask, okay, with these reforms, these financial regulatory reforms, what are the role for foreign institutions? and foreigners in this. You know, Ifan mentioned continued reform and opening, um, and you have brought it down to the financial sector. What is gonna be the role of foreigners in this and how much more is China gonna open to foreign investors and foreign operators? Right, um, well, foreign, um, uh, foreign players is always a critical force in financial reform and financial development in China. We, in fact, started a financial opening very early. But, but before I get into the details, let me um, divide the financial opening into two different categories. One is opening of the financial services sector, which really means introduction of foreign financial institutions to China to operate um, here. The other is, uh, opening of the capital account, so mainly cross-border capital flows. What is happening in China is I think the Chinese government has been much more relaxed and aggressive in opening the financial services sector. Certainly look at last three, five years. Um, you probably know the government implemented more than 50 measures during the past three, four years um, allowing financial, foreign financial institutions to operate in China. That was very encouraging. In fact, I'm always very proud when we talk about 
opening of the Chinese economy, one area is leading was in the financial sector. Today, you can see um, wholly uh, on the foreign financial institutions in China, in many areas, I think they're going to happen more. These financial institutions are very important for the Chinese financial market. And they, they not just bring some capital, but more importantly, they bring new technology, new product, new business models, and so on. And of course, they also bring in um, uh, competition. So that's one area we already saw significant progress, and I expect that to continue. The second area, capital account liberalization and uh, um, opening of the capital markets. In fact, I think that will be the main breakthroughs during the 14th five-year plan. The government is already trying to put together some plans for opening the capital account and as alongside restarting internationalization of, um, of RMB. I think we should all pay attention to um, that particular area in the next five years. I'm pretty confident, I think we're going to see significant breakthroughs in that area. So it will be a lot easier for foreign investors to come to China to invest in the Chinese market to hold unbe-denominated financial assets within five years. And that I assume is part of the confidence that the leadership has today in the Chinese economy, that you liberalize at a time when your reserves are strong, when FDI is flowing in, when the capital account is growing, which brings me back to Yifan, back to Yifan to ask the, by the way, I, I couldn't hear at one portion. Did you give a date at which point you said the Chinese economy, you give an assumption 2% US growth, China's 4.9% growth, when the two would cross? Did you say what year that would be? When China's economy uh, would become bigger? Okay, so uh, if we assume the US growth will be 2%, the China's growth will be around 4.7% CAGR growth, and then on the 2030, and uh, like uh, for the, uh, the US and China GDP will be similar. Uh, if, the, if we assume US at 3%, then it will be 2035. And if it's 2%, it's what? It's a 2% of the, if we assume the US GDP, 2% of the growth. So I think to buy uh, China is around like 5% of the growth. So by 2030, so the China's GDP and the US GDP will be similar. I see. And does that take into account this enormous difference that have occurred in the last 12 months of almost, you know, China rebounding from COVID quickly and America not? Uh, yes, but uh, yeah, but 2021 will be an outline. So the, this year, the China's GDP growth will be around like 9%. So we just assume like a streamlined to 5% and then that, that will be the case. So it's a uh, Already take the effect in, take already take the factor. The I noticed, you know, the confidence, uh, you know, the confidence measure that came out recently weakened quite a bit in in China. I noticed that we're seeing having the Chinese government controlled COVID so well after the initial outbreak, but now we're seeing outbreaks and we're seeing lockdowns. Um, you think it's going to start affecting? And I assume over Lunar New Year, I've heard from many people they're staying home so that the, the surge in 
in travel that generally occurs around the new year is going to be much more limited this year. Uh, have you taken that into account? And what does that mean for going forward? And is there some risk that, you know, we're seeing, sadly, we're seeing mutations of the virus, we're seeing higher transmissions. Um, is that a risk to your forecast? Uh, we're already taking into consideration of the forecast. So yes, I think that during the Chinese New Year, there's a still like a, a large migration of the workers like a return hometown. And I think for the Chinese government already applies a lot of like measures, try to control the potential opportunities to spread the virus. Of course, it's not like a fully controllable. So, but we already see there's many measures that's already applied. For example, uh, almost everyone like a returning hometown have to take the uh, new cell, uh, new cell sick, new cell like uh, asset test. And also uh, have to like, uh, if there are any things like uh, uh, there's a mini lockdowns, if any suspect, uh, suspected cases happen. And also I think that now um, for the uh, vaccination, I guess like uh, it's also like uh, the, I, I think will be the final solution for the US as well. It's also largely applied in China, especially like uh, for the vulnerable uh, positions. So I think to combine the ways uh, uh, like how well-managed uh, uh, measures uh, plus the vaccination, I think the, we still think the uh, vaccination, uh, the virus can be largely controlled. So the, the consumer confidence is gradually picking up. But of course, we are not seeing like how for the virus will disappear this year, and, but uh, it, could it might could exist for a long time with the human beings, but we think that it's still like how manageable, especially in China. So then your base case for 2021 is 9%, 9% growth? Uh, yes, yes, it's around 9%. So it's uh, like, uh, I think this year uh, for the consumption will catch up because last year for the consumption is still at 3%. Uh, it's uh, mainly uh, led by the investment and exports. So this year we think the exports will continue to be strong, especially supported by the infrastructure and also property investment. And for the consumption side, led by the auto and also some discretionary and also uh, uh, like a staple consumption. Uh, and also we saw the transportation and uh, maybe for the tourism and also for some service sector, entertainment service sector, so we'll catch up, we'll catch up gradually. So that's actually gave some additional strength for the Chinese economy. Yao Yang and Yiping, is that basically where you are for 2021, around 9%? Well, I, I, I don't make a forecast anymore, but I see uh, um, the range of forecast in the market. And IMF just gave a number 8.1%. So I would certainly trust the events forecast and it could even be higher. Mm -hmm. But we have, Steve, we have to discount the base effect last year because we had a, a very low base. Yeah. Yeah, a lot of that is based upon the way China calculates it. Yeah, Yao Yang, is that about where you you are? I I actually have no idea. I I don't do forecast, but uh, you know, since Eva has done a lot of research, I tend to believe her. And what does this mean? What is the you know with these flows, um, and the very optimistic view of China's economy versus the rest of the world? What does it mean? And and Yiping made 
reference to internationalization of the RMB and potentially um, making it more, the, the valuation more market-based. Where do you think the RMB ends up um, when we do our forecast in 2022? So a year from now. This question for Yifan or for me? Anybody who wants to answer. Well, I'll have a go and Yifan probably, Yifan is, is, she is a chief investment officer. Um, so she probably knows better. Um, my, my, my general sense is that if the Chinese economy does better than the rest of the world still, there is um, a, a possibility that the currency should um, uh, appreciate, continue to appreciate. But the question here is when the determination of the exchange rate is affected by a number of factors. And in fact, the relativity is very important. So for instance, even if China is growing more rapidly than the rest of the world, but if the US and some other developed countries recovered faster in relative terms than, the, than China, maybe their currency could even be stronger. There are a number of other factors I think we should take into account. Number one, what is going to happen to the Fed, uh, Federal Reserve Bank's um, quantitative easing? If they start to tighten, that would affect the interest rate, liquidity, and exchange rate of RMB in China. Number two, um, capital account liberalization in China, which I predicted would be the main breakthrough next, uh, next five years, would also have some impact implications for the exchange rate because our past capital account liberalization was easier on inflows, but, the, but more difficult on the outflows. So really capital account liberalization in the next five years, meaning easier for the residents to invest overseas, that would also affect the exchange rate. So uh, my general prediction is that uh, um, the currency could stay strong if the economy does better than the rest of the world, but there are many other factors we should keep in mind. My main um, argument is that we should always avoid adaptive expectation about the exchange rate. Yifan? Mm. Uh, yes, I just uh, I agree with uh, Yiping. So I just want to add here. So this year we forecast the US, USD could be relatively weak comparing with the uh, uh, rest of the currency. Uh, the reason I think is that the main reason is still the due deficit. I think the, uh, because of the strong stimulus package last year for the US for the fiscal deficit as close to the six, uh, 16 uh, to 18%. And this year with 1.8 trillion of the stimulus and we expect the like uh, for the deficit will continue to be around like uh, uh, around like 15% of the GDP. So that's huge gap and also plus for the US for the um, for the external deficit. So the due deficit will keep the dollar relatively, I'm not saying like a very weak, but at least like uh, will not be as strong as, as previous years. So that's actually gives some opportunities for the CNY. So for the uh, RMB, we think this year will at least like be relatively stable. So that's actually it's uh, for the, um, it's already, uh, uh, that will be actually very attractive for the international investors. 
So uh, especially for China's like a bond market, because this year for the China, for the government bonds will be included in the uh, world government bond index. So currently for the China 10 year treasury bonds is about like a 3.2 to 3.4 return, uh, comparing with uh, for the US around 1% or for the European countries is uh, like around 0% plus a stable, relatively uh, stable for the stable CNY. So that's very attractive for the like international investors. Uh, so for the equity market, because of the rebound of the Chinese economy, we also expect for the corporate revenues this year for the Chinese market in general, will rebound around like 20% uh, by the end of this year. So that's actually bring some uh, like additional strengths like uh, for the uh, investor, investors for the uh, secondary market. So as EP mentioned, like uh, for the financial services, like openness, I think at least we are on the right direction. I think it's like uh, for the, I think it's a good sign. I think besides the financial, uh, for the financial sector openness, I also wanted to highlight like uh, the, for the China further openness like uh, in many other uh, fields. Uh, so that will also bring some uh, uh, attractiveness like uh, for the investors for the direct investment in China. So I think the major, uh, mainly it's including like for the manufacturing sectors, uh, more sectors like a more, um, more sectors will be open, uh, especially like highlight the, in the uh, Sino-European bilateral investment treat, treatment and also the, for the RCEP, that's including transportation, telecommunication and auto sectors. And also we will have open for some service sectors, especially for the health sectors, for the private hospitals could be open to the foreign investors. And also for the R&D sector, for the R&D field, especially for the biological resources could be, um, could be limited access to the foreigners as well. And also for the crowd services and telecommunication I mentioned, that's also part of the services could open to the foreigners. And also for the international, uh, um, uh, for the international, for the uh, uh, maritime uh, transportation, and it will be also for the foreign investors. So that will be very attractive. And also for the air transport related service will be like open. And also especially for China now uh, put emphasize on the, for the green economy. Uh, so we think that there's a lot of cooperation in the environment, especially like for the ESG uh, highlighted by the government. Uh, it's, uh, I think the, it's also in the future will be actually required to uh, be included in disclosure, especially for the listed companies. So I think with all this kind of the openness, plus all this kind of the, uh, the recovery and also um, for the relatively stable CNY. So the China actually, we call the 2021 as a year of stress, could be very attractive to the international investors. Yeah, that, that spread to US treasuries has narrowed over the last few weeks, but it still is still is quite significant. It should bring in more money. By the way, are we going to have a real estate tax in uh, China? That's been talked about for for years. And what's that going to do to kind of the overinvestment in real estate? Any of you want to hazard a guess on that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think uh, the real estate tax uh, will be implemented in five years. Uh, the government has uh, stated clearly 
but I don't know the impacts uh, on that sector. Uh, it could have uh, some effect on speculation, uh, but uh, if the government gives us some time for people to respond, then people uh, were first to sell off their house before that, right? So in general, uh, it's going to be good for the whole sector and also for the economy. Uh, yeah, I wanted to add here. I think it's a good tax because, like, uh, at least, like, uh, uh, like, could tax the rich people, and also that's the purpose of tax. And also, I think that could like uh, uh, probably curb uh, speculation. Uh, but also that could affect the, the the wealth. But in China, in my view, there's a lot of like uh, uh, that the policy will be more like a local policy, localized policy. So catering like uh, to the local uh, structure, local like uh, for the ownership structure. So currently, we know it's already like uh, for the Shanghai and Chongqing has a property tax. And but for the but they also have the exemption for the like maybe for for the first house like for the families and also uh, and also for the house value like the valuations also have some flexibility. So I think the, uh, it's uh, in my view it's very likely in the future. So we will have like maybe for the for the, for the first house ex exempted from the uh, the housing tax. And also, uh, probably we will tax for the new housing first. For the old, for the existing ones, maybe we'll tax when it's in transactions. And also, uh, for the tax rates, dep really depends on locally. I think that's uh, ranging from one to three percent. So it's really depend. Uh, like, uh, yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's also. So it will be relatively flexible. Technically, the China now it's uh, ready to uh, lab the tax. So I agree with Yao Yang. It's uh, probably in five years after the property tax, then it's probably it, it will come with the inherited tax as well. Studying America, um, Yiping, you're <laughs> head of the Institute of Digital Finance. Can you tell us um, about where the central bank digital currency is? And whether in part this is um, a way for the central bank to set monetary, to have better data to set monetary policy. Uh, well, the um, China, the, the central bank already finished the design um, of um, its digital currency, what do we call now um, ECNY. From last year, they already, well, the year before, they already experimenting in a number of cities, like four cities, but also um, the, 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 uh, the Winter Olympic uh, theme. So they experiment. I think the question now is uh, when the central bank will feel um, comfortable with um, the technology, the operation of the mechanism itself, and then it could be rolled out. Um, I used to say um, the ECNY can be rolled out relatively quickly, but I've been saying it for some time and still not yet. So I don't know exactly when. And if uh, I have to make a prediction, then I hope um, the ECNY will be in our e uh, digital wallet um, during 2021, I hope, but it may not happen. Um, your question about whether this is, uh, might be a, a, a step to facilitate 
um, better monitoring of the financial system for better um, monetary policy making. Um, I think that is probably quite a few steps away from us. ECNY really is a form of electronic payment. According to the PBOC officials, this really is only substituted for currency in circulation. And to some extent, this is very similar to the mobile payment service we're already using, like WeChat Pay and Alipay. Um, the difference is this is directly issued by the central bank, while Alipay and WeChat Pay is unbe in electronics form, but uh, are created by um, these institutions themselves. So I think the direct impact, there could be some substitution with the existing mobile payment, um, because this is also a mobile payment and in, to some extent it might actually be better than the existing electronic form because this is a legal tender. Um, it's safer and it's also probably co more cost effective because the PBOC is not going to charge in somebody like for using digital currency to make uh, um, the payment. So these are all good, but there are two things I like to just highlight. Number one, this does not necessarily mean it will completely push out the mobile payment service because the idea is that we're probably going to have nine authorized institutions developing their own digital wallets. These nine institutions, including um, Alibaba and including Tencent. So the wallet could still be there. And in fact, in the future, in Alipay wallet and in WeChat Pay wallet, you can also use directly use um, just the ECNY um, instead of what they're using at the moment. So these wallets will continue to exist. They don't, they're not going to be pushed out. But at the same time, there will be competition because there will be nine digital wallets and at the same time using the same ECNY. This is the first thing. Definitely there will be competition. The second thing as a result of that, I think more important is that after nine warriors were in, are introduced, the information, the digital footprints, um, these mobile service and payment service operators collected before may become segregated. Meaning if I use Alipay to pay your ICBC uh, wallet, then Alipay would only know this part of this, the, the transaction and ICBC would only know the other part of the transaction the, the two of them, neither of them would have a complete picture of the entire transaction. The only organization will have the full data is the central bank. That I think is a, could be a significant change. And in fact, it could affect the future landscape of um, what certainly would be important for data policy, but may also affect the landscape of digital finance. This is in my view, much more important than competition for mobile payment and, 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 and implications for monetary policy, I think uh, will be sometime like a bit distant uh, away from us. Fascinating. Um, my last question, then I'm gonna go to audience questions. There is enormous debate today on, on a listserv that I'm on about China's fertility rate and the enormous drop that appears to be occurring in China's fertility rate in some places these are reports not from the central government, but from the local governments. In some places up to 30%, which is truly extraordinary. 
Um, and obviously that's not COVID data, it's data that related to the births in, in 2020, which was obviously, <laughs> they were conceived mostly in, in 2019. Um, number one, is, is that likely the case? And two, what are the implications of that for economic growth? Yeah, let me take that question. Uh, I think uh, those uh, uh, data are quite uh, alarming, uh, but uh, looking into the future, probably there is no way for China to reverse this trend, uh, the declining fertility rate. Um, China is going to look like our Asian neighbors. Right? Uh, so think about uh, Japan, Korea, their fertility rate is about 1.4, even below one. Right? So China eventually is going to reach uh, that stage, no matter what kind of government policies are going to be conducted, right? Uh, but what are the implications of economic growth in the future? Uh, in our uh, China 2049 uh, book project, uh, we did uh, some uh, analysis uh, we just found out uh, actually we don't need to worry about labor supply because uh, of automation. Actually, automation is going to more than compensate the loss of uh, uh, labor force due to population aging. Right? Uh, and we probably we don't need to worry about consumption like Japan is worrying about uh, just because uh, China still has a lot of people living in the countryside uh, who are going to move into the city, that's going to automatically increase uh, uh, consumption. So uh, to become old before getting rich is actually good for China in this case. Uh, the biggest challenge is the social security. Right? In uh, 10 years or 20 years time, when our generation, Yiping <laughs> and my generation, uh, gets old, uh, that's going to be a huge challenge, right? But uh, uh, China still has some room to deal with that. Uh, uh, so China's pub public assets, right? It's about uh, it's a, uh, two, uh, 200 trillion net assets uh, in the hands of the government. So supposedly the government can just uh, sell off some of the assets, uh, then uh, use the money uh, to subsidize the social security system. So that, so we can get by, that's a huge uh, wave of aging. Then uh, after 2050, uh, you know, population is going to stabilize. Uh, so that's going to be much better than the next uh, uh, 20, 30 years. Yifan, give us a view on where you think, um, well, this is from uh, Vincent Zhu at the uh, Rhodium Group, of where you think China's current account and trade um, positions surplus, I think is fair to say for 2021, are gonna be in this coming year. Uh, in 2021, of course, yeah. we still expect like uh, for the like uh, for the surplus, like uh, for the China for the Chinese current account. Yeah. Uh, like especially like how we also expect there there might be like a surprise in the export side as well, 
so with the direct investment of, of course, like um, uh, I think because of the large capital control outflows. So I think the overall for the capital account is also uh, like uh, uh, will continue to keep the, uh, the surplus as well. Uh, but at the same time, we also see the trend for the uh, for the um, falling the balance of the current account. Uh, I think that currently, uh, before we used to run like a four to five percent of the current account surplus, then like uh, gradually um, uh, four to the three percent. Now it's uh, like uh, maintained around like uh, between one to two percent. So we think that would be the trend. So overall speaking, I think that China will still have the very uh, have the strengths like uh, for the uh, for the exports as well as for the attractiveness for direct investment. So we think that will still keep its current account relatively balanced, uh, especially uh, like even while the surplus. Any, for the chance, any chance that the restrictions on capital outflow for are going to be lifted? Uh, actually, the recently for the for the capital account, like uh, there's uh, some uh, because of the strength of the CNY. So I think in the late December, there's uh, some relaxation of the capital outflows, especially for the person uh, for the in, for the household account. So I think the, uh, I think there's uh, some uh, new reg, uh, new measures and to allow for the household to uh, maybe transfer out the some of the like the. Uh, for the capital, uh, I think the FCA, uh, the, the, the capital gains outside from China. So I guess that really depends on for the CNY strengths. Is that part but, of the financial reform meeting that you think about? Relaxation? Yes, that? Um, well, in fact, uh, um, as I said, my expectation is that uh, um, internationalization of the currency and uh, uh, liberalization of the capital accounts will be um, the key focus um, in a financial opening over the next uh, uh, five years. Um, the question about uh, the timing, I think uh, this is kind of uh, a tricky question. In the past, we always focus on, well, trying to find a better time to liberalize when the macroeconomic situations are uh, sound. But now I think looking back, um, the, the experience of most developing countries suggests that that might not be um, the ideal strategy. When the macroeconomic condition is, is great, you liberalize the capital account, there will be lots of capital inflows and you feel happy because more liquidity, high property prices, stronger currency and so on. And you all claim that the international investors are voting with their money um, in, in confidence in our system. But the problem is, as you know, when capital moves in rapidly, there always will be a point when these flows return. And when the money is moving in, you could easily lead to asset bubbles, uh, over uh, uh, value the currency and so on. So, so you often end up in a financial crisis. I think the current thinking now is, maybe timing is less critical than the method you liberalize. What is important for us to liberalize going forward is we need to be careful about the sequencing of liberalization. The real sector first, the financial sector follows. The, um, the, 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 the domestic economy first and the external economy follows and exchange rate first, then capital account uh, follows. Uh, one very important new thinking is that 
whatever way we liberalize, we always need to have macroprudential regulations in place, which means when even when we liberalizing, we're always thinking about um, the, the, the bad times um, and make sure that risks don't accumulate excessively. That is the strategy I think uh, um, uh, we, should, uh, we should always keep in mind. Yeah. Um, let me go to audience questions. Um, first one from, well, we've already done one, from Sheldon Pang, one of our, uh, one of our directors uh, for Yao Yang. You know, you talked about kind of green finance and, and uh, climate change and the efforts there. And he says, China started a nationwide carbon credit trading exchange Given China's ambition to make real progress in curbing emissions, many people are very disappointed at the initial implementation of the scheme in that the penalty for non-compliance to pollution quota is so minimal, 20 to 30,000 RMB, and that foreign invested companies in China are not allowed to participate. A number of Observers feel this is an example of the central government being fooled by people below. Do you have any comments on that? Well, I'm not an expert on this, uh, but uh, I tend to agree with the opinion by my colleague, uh, uh, Professor uh, Xi Jintao, he's an environmental expert. Uh, his idea is that uh, carbon trading is not a the direction of China go because uh, it really requires a lot of regulatory tests. Uh, so he actually favors the carbon tax, right? And the carbon tax belongs to local governments. So local governments then have a lot of incentive to cut the tax and then. Uh, so that, that's going to be much better uh, for current dimension. Yeah. Um, Arthur Prober asks all of you, um, the five to 10 year views you have expressed are in general very optimistic. What are the major risks that could, risks that could cause China to fall significantly short of its growth objective over the next decade? So what are the what are the downside risks? What can go wrong? Uh, let, let me go first. Uh, I think uh, the biggest risk is uh, the deterioration, the continuous deterioration of U.S.-China relations. Uh, that's by far the largest risk. Right? Uh, so if uh, the the U.S. continues uh, the Trump administration's uh, policy. And then uh, you know, China's economy is going to have uh, much more trouble, right? Hmm. Yiping? Uh, well, there, there could be other risks. Um, number one, for instance, if we don't manage the financial risks well, and uh, um, unfortunately, if we end up in a, a systemic financial crisis, then uh, we're not going to make that, uh, um, that target. The other thing which is very important is um, the ability to innovate because non-growth is innovation driven. Um, I'm not really talking about very high-end innovation. We're competing with the US chip industry and so on. 
what China needs to support growth over the next five to 15 years is really improvement on the existing level of technology. Like if you're making um, an electronic uh, product, you're making automobile, we need always to advance in that direction. Um, we certainly doing well um, so far, but there is a big question if we can continue, particularly in light of what uh, um, Yayan just highlighted, if external environment becomes really very hostile, I think there is a potential risk there. Okay, so I think, uh, yeah, uh, uh, yeah, I agree with uh, EP and Yaoyang. I think uh, uh, another risk I can think of is uh, still for the leverage, the macro leverage. I think uh, they, it used to be a very big concern in the 2018, and then I think it's uh, Probably like uh, it, it's like oh, because overwhelmed the Sino-US tension, I think it's put aside. And also, uh, of course, the China stimulus package is not as strong as like uh, the US last year, but still uh, it's a quite uh, significant uh, package. So I think that uh, actually will continue to push up the macro leverage, especially like I think with the urbanization 2.0, so that means like uh, for the local government has to spend more on the infrastructure. So I think the, it's probably not only the phenomenon for China, it's a global phenomenon, but I think the, for it's a still like a concern for the longer term uh, because all, not only for the local governments, but also for the households, we also say for the leverage actually increase quite a lot. So for the leverage, not only have the, uh, the, uh, the growth issue, but also have it's a structure issue in China as well. Is it fair to say that the, the greatest risk is that their vested interests in China that don't represent the majority but that really don't want and don't benefit from reform. And that those interests can have real effect on decisions relating to reform. And isn't the greatest risk that the vested interests who don't benefit prevail, reform doesn't occur the way it should, and the economy begins to slow more and more? Uh, I give a like a quick answer. Maybe I think EP and Yang Yang can add. Uh, in my view, yes, I think it's indeed for the reforms become has become harder. Uh, I think the, at the current stage because it's a have the combined interest group. However, I think the the situation in my view has actually changed a little bit since 2018 because of the pressure of the U.S. side. So I think the. For uh, the tension, of course, like on one, on one side, I think it's also have the negative pressure on China's economy. But on the other side, I think it's also uh, push China's like openness and the reforms. So from, the, from this sense, I think the, the largest opposite uh, party for China is the US, probably the same situation for the US as well. And let me add to Yvonne's comments. Uh, I agree with her, you know, uh, uh, over the last two years, uh, China has done a lot of reforms uh, uh, through the foreign channel, right? Uh, for example, uh, there's a, a BIT with the European Union is going to bring major reforms to China. And also because of the US pressure, we had uh, there's a new uh, foreign director in website law that changed uh, the situation quite a lot. 
actually, I don't worry uh, that much about reform. I don't think, uh, to me, seriously, I don't I really don't think a reform is uh, the biggest challenge for China. The biggest challenge for China is that domestically is that the policies uh, are quite often guided by emotion uh, instead of uh, a rational discussion and a calculation. That's the risk. Interesting. Um, Yiping, Bob Donor has a question for, um, for you, which just disappeared off my, uh, there it is. Um, it says, um, Bob Donor, also a member of our track two dialogue, uh, removing a government guarantee and moving to market-based credit supply is inherently difficult, particularly if there is a large existing stock of credit. Will the Chinese government try to engineer a managed pace of credit distress and bankruptcy, or will it shift back and forth between market-based risk and government guarantee? I guess the Bob already implicitly uh, provided an answer to um, that question because he knows China so well. Um, I think the strategy of the government now is they realize blanket guarantee doesn't work anymore. You cannot sustain. Um, therefore, um, a few years ago, the government already decided that they should let some um, risks to, um, to, 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 to blow up in, a, in, 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 in limited areas. Um, but the question, I think the problem is, is that once you let some risks to come out, there is a potential that it might spread to some other areas. Then the policymakers would become quite worried. We saw a number of cases during the past years. So for instance, a couple of years ago, you all know there was one bank in Inner Mongolia, uh, Baosan Bank had a problem and it was restructured um, by, by the regulators. There are some other problems um, and look around and I think the government became nervous. Um, so they didn't want everybody to like, uh, um, to show, show up their problems. So my guess, um, uh, my answer to Bob, I guess is that now we have the right strategy of uh, manage the release of the risks. Um, hopefully um, there will be no systemic risk. The challenge is always that uh, um, the, the trade-off between the two is always very difficult. So we don't know if we, we, we will see one of these two extreme risks. Either you're always trying to release some risks, but you worry about the big problems, then you go back to the older regime. I think that's what we're seeing at the moment. The other risk is if you become bold enough and you make more uh, progresses, um, then there is also a risk to see widespread problems in the financial, uh, financial system. Um, at the moment, I don't know what will be the exact outcome. I certainly hope the middle ground, um, what the government is hoping that is gradually release some risks at the same time, strengthening the regulation and hopefully some of the existing stocks of problems can be resolved even if we don't let them like blow up, um, like what happened with the state-owned commercial banks in the late 1990s. That's the ideal route. 
but there's no guarantee that this will happen. And this is why uh, my number one uh, potential risk for Chinese growth trajectory over the next five to 15 years is, um, is, is a financial risk. A number of people asked about um, semiconductors. Uh, let me ask uh, Liz Economies, one of our directors also. And she asked, China had a target of 40% self-sufficiency for semiconductors by 2020. And as was stated, 70% by 2025. But it has already missed the, the 2020 target by a wide margin. And many of China's investments in this area have collapsed over the past year. What gives you confidence that China will achieve its 2025 target? Uh, let me try to answer this question. Uh, you know, China missed the 2020 target probably because uh, the U.S. Uh, didn't give China enough pressure. That's probably much true because uh, because of the U.S. pressure, China is going up uh, investment into the semiconductor industry. Uh, yes, uh, last year. Uh, many local investments uh, collapsed, uh, but that's not going to stop China investing in uh, that industry. Uh, currently, the government calls for private equity funds to join hand with uh, local investment funds. Uh, I, I think much of the investment is going to go to high-tech areas in which uh, the chips industry will be a major uh, target of the investment. Uh, and also, if we think about uh, those uh, low precision uh, chips, uh, China actually has uh, quite a strong uh, manufacturing capacity. So China can probably start from uh, this area, then gradually move up the ladder to produce uh, high precision chips. Anybody else want to comment on that one? Um, David Utes, a uh, former employee of the uh, National Committee, uh, said in two asked in 2019, China committed to large purchases of agricultural and other products that were to some degree paused by COVID-19 crisis. Will China return to those purchasing commitments this year and are there other economic measures that China could take that would demonstrate good faith to the new Biden administration and encourage reciprocal improvements in U.S.-China relations? Um, okay, so uh, for the phase one deal, for uh, although it's uh, handicapped by the COVID-19, uh, I think the China still try to um, like uh, made it a commitment. So actually, by uh, uh, the data is by uh, October, by the no uh, by the November twenty twenty, the China actually for from the ag agriculture goods already fulfilled by like around like eighty percent. So the speed actually caught up very rapidly uh, since like uh, for the second half of the last year. So uh, in our view, uh, although with the increasing pressure from the, um, the Trump administration, the China still make it, uh, still try to commit its, uh, like uh, make, made its commitment. 
So in our view, uh, for the trade one deal, probably will continue if there's uh, no other um, no other disturbance. But it also depends on really depends on the new relationship between the bad uh, between the Biden administration and China. So I think the China now is uh, wait and see to see what will happen like how for the new administration. Yiping or Yao Yang, any suggestions on that for that one? Well, I think uh, um, if phase one is still a legal document, then um, the Chinese government will continue to implement. Although there was a question even in the US when the, um, the agreement was signed, if um, the number, the target of purchase was practical enough for the two sides to fulfill. Um, so this is one issue I think uh, we need to, to, to look at. And as Yifan suggested, we are at the moment hearing from media reports, a lot of different information messages about what the Biden administration is going to do about it. I think so the two sides will probably need to come together and to make a position um, on this. But bottom line is, um, I'm sure the Chinese government will um, need to make uh, more efforts trying to, um, to, to, to liberalize um, its economic system, issues like better protection of intellectual property rights, opening of the domestic uh, market, and hopefully also reducing uh, reduce, um, subsidies to state-owned enterprises. These are the areas the government already committed, and if China can do some of it, I think it would, uh, uh, would show goodwill uh, in co cooperating with the uh, Biden administration. Um, just to finish, um, I think one thing we all should pay attention to is that the Chinese government made a clear message um, about its interest in joining CPTPP. If that is the case, I think uh, the potential reform program would be way beyond what we have in mind because the CPTPP is a very high level um, opening a regime standard. Um, and the Chinese government said it's seriously interested in joining it. So I, I think we could see uh, potential uh, progress in uh, structural reforms. But again, um, what is going to happen to large extent also um, depends on um, the atmosphere of the bilateral relations. Yeah, I think that that CPTPP statement is absolutely true. It would mean massive reforms in China. Um, and I mean, you, I would expect that in an agreement, it would, you would need a long pathway for China to ultimately comply. Um, that's one issue you would need to negotiate. The other is uh, each of the countries have veto power over any new uh, entry. Um, so the question would be, would Japan or other allies of the United States be willing uh, to even negotiate an admission of China while US-China relations are um, you know, deeply troubled? Um, and I would argue, I think David's question is great. There, you know, China, obviously the, the benefits of the, the comprehensive 
agreement on investment with the EU will also flow to the United States. So that, you know, kind of it's, it has most favored nation provisions, I think. So that would be a benefit. And hopefully the United States and US businesses will, will create, will invest in China and create, by doing that, create additional jobs in the United States. But China should well, begin the process of cutting tariffs that were imposed during the Trump era. They're no good for the Chinese consumer. They're no good for American exporters. And I'm confident, you know, President Biden in his uh, campaign and since then has talked about the loss of jobs uh, as a result of the U.S. imposition of these tariffs. So it failed. Uh, it not only failed to generate jobs in the United States, the, the analysis is that it lost jobs. I think the number that the campaign used was around 250,000. Um, so both sides can enter into negotiations to reduce tariffs, which help both the people of China and the people of the United States. Um, any final, you know, I, I've got another 25 questions, but we don't have time um, to ask them unless if there's one that jumps out um, someone is asking, what would capital account liberalization look like? <laughs> well, um, that, I mean, IMF has uh, um, a category of um, 40 different uh, areas of cross-border um, capital flows. Um, capital account liberalization would mean if my prediction is right, by the end of the 14th five-year plan um, period, which means by 2025, we should achieve what IMF defined as basic convertibility. Uh, most of the items, the categories should be open for uh, two-way capital flows. But obviously, um, the authorities would probably want to retain some short, some restrictions on short-term capital movement for the purpose of um, financial stability, anti-money laundering, and a number of reasons. So that is, I think, what the Chinese government is aiming at. The idea is that for all economic and political reasons, China has developed into such a stage that open capital account is a must for China to continue to rise. But at the same time, we also needed to be careful about the potential risks. So there will be some restrictions, but a small number of restrictions remain, plus some macro prudential regulations. Other than that, the capital account should be largely open within five years. Fascinating. We've come to our closing time. And I know all of you have to get to your day jobs and we, We'll get to our nightcaps here on the East Coast, but I can't, Yao Yang, Yiping, Yifan, I can't thank you enough for, for being with us this evening. I can't thank you enough for being such great participants in our track two dialogues and always being available when the National Committee asks for your help. But I have learned a ton tonight and I am absolutely certain our audience has learned a ton and really informed us about what's gonna be going on in the Chinese economy in the coming year. But thank you all so much. It has really been terrific. And audience, thank you so much for, for uh, joining us this evening. Thank you. Thank you, Steve, for this uh, wonderful hosting. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Yeah.
For more interviews, videos, and links to events like this one, visit us at www.ncuscr.org.